That summary is rather rapid, so I'd encourage you to look up the Bible Project online and have a look at it again and again. <laughs> so my name is David Blackman, if we haven't met. It's good to be with you on our first evening service for the year. And my responsibility this evening is to kick off a new series, and that is the Epistle to the Romans, and we're going to be spending just about the whole year doing it in, in stages. So this is where we begin. And the series is entitled Deep Truths. And this type, this one I'm going to I'm entitling The Gospel According to Paul. So Paul's letters make up about twenty-five percent of the New Testament. This letter is his longest one, and it's his most systematic, his most reasoned letter. And so that's why we're spending so much time on it. We're not going to rush through it. We will take it in small stages. So as that clip mentioned, the, uh, the church in Rome began with small groups of Jewish people, uh, who had moved there, perhaps they had become believers when they visited Jerusalem, perhaps some of them were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in AD 30. We don't know that, but that's possible. But the church in Rome wasn't so much a single congregation, but rather a loose network of home fellowships. We get a hint of that in chapter 16 where Paul addresses, you know, gives greetings to a whole lot of people and specifically to some households, people who meet in, in households. So as the clip mentioned, in those early days, the church in Rome, or the churches, were made up mostly of Jewish people. And so they knew all the backstory. They knew the Old Testament, they knew the Torah, the law of God. But once uh, the Jews were expelled from Rome, we find that the, uh, it's basically Gentile converts who are in the church. So when the, uh, the Jewish Christians come back in AD 54 or thereabouts after Claudius's death, they return to a church that was nothing like the one they left. And just as an aside, you, if you can some of you will, will understand what I mean. Say when a mission decides that the people they're ministering to in some remote country or place is fully trained and they leave. Things don't necessarily continue the way they used to. And that is exactly what has happened here in Rome. So these uh, Jewish Christians come back and they find things have changed. So there were clashes over Jewish rituals, over traditions, over what things should be observed and what things should not be observed, over dietary rules, so many things that were foreign to Gentile believers. It was not part of their background, so why should they, should they observe these things? It's understandable. But these issues were threatening to break apart the church in Rome. Hence, um, 
Paul's, one of Paul's main themes being one of unity amongst the believers. So when he writes this letter in AD 57, so a few years after the, the Jews came back, he goes into some detail about the importance of living in harmony and worship together and the importance of building up a new culture of faith. But not transplanting something from somewhere else, but building up a unique Christian culture. Now we know, of course, that churches are not trouble-free places. We've had our challenges in this church over the years. But in this letter, Paul is con concerned with what unites the Christians, not what divides them. His focus, he focuses on truth, he focuses on love. And he does this by giving them a letter that is filled with systematic teaching. He gives them a wide-ranging theological foundation for their faith so that they could build on it and build it on a basis of concrete truth so that they would be able to live for God together and they would be able to worship God together and serve him effectively together. Now the Christians in Rome had not had the benefit of uh, being taught by an apostle. Paul writes to them in this epistle and his other epistles with the authority of an apostle. Now we know that he was not one of the twelve chosen by Jesus at the start of his ministry, but we still consider Paul to be an apostle and indeed he frequently calls himself one. That word apostolos in Greek means one sent forth. So Paul certainly fits that description. We know from the story in Acts chapter 9 when he meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and he receives in the events that followed, he receives a commission to go to, to preach the gospel. In fact, in that chapter further on, the Lord says himself of Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That's a calling and a half, isn't it? And Paul publicly affirms that calling later on in Acts, in chapters 22 and 26. He even calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, we read that in Romans 11:13. Of course, he preached to Jews as well, and the other apostles preached to Jews. And the other apostles also preached to Gentiles. But there, was, there was this crossover. We know that it was Paul's custom when he first came to a new city to preach in the Jewish synagogue. But for Paul, though, the focus, the main focus of his ministry was was to the Gentiles. So in this letter to Rome, to the Romans, we have a systematic, a thorough overview of God's whole plan for mankind. And that's why it's often called the Gospel according to Paul. 
It doesn't mean that the gospel is any different to the message preached by the other four gospel writers or by Jesus himself. It's just that this happens to be the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. So it's definitely worth our while spending a few months going through it. By the way, if you weren't here this morning, I would encourage you to listen to Gavin's message. Uh, he was preaching from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, but he was introducing the concept of the gospel and what is the gospel and explaining to us the fact that to preach the gospel at that time and to write the gospel was a very dangerous thing to do. It was, it was subversive. So get hold of that if you can. So our passage then is the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship, all of us, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his, for his name's sake. And you also, that's the Romans, were also, are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And of course that applies to us too. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So even in this passage we have a very quick summary of the Gospel according to Paul. He starts off by saying that Long ago, it was promised through the prophets that God's own Son would come into the world in power and he would die and he would be raised from death and that we, through faith and by his grace, can belong to him as his holy people. So there's a quick summary right there. We often use this word gospel. It's a word from Old English, also called Anglo-Saxon. So that's the language that was first written down in England over a thousand years ago, so we call it Old English. It looks very little like modern English. So in Old English, God spell means good story or good message. Sometimes we say we call it good news, and that's true. The gospel is definitely good news. God has made a way for sinful mankind to be reconciled to him. That is good news. But there is a flip side. Have you considered that, that there's a flip side? Because for some people, it is not good news, is it? 
It's very bad news for anybody who chooses not to believe in Jesus. It is bad news. Scripture is clear. Those who choose not to believe in Jesus Christ are condemned to an unpleasant eternity separated from God. That's a serious thing, that created beings could be separated forever from their creator. It's not a pleasant prospect. Does that sound offensive? Modern thought would call that offensive. That a loving God, supposedly, could condemn people like that? Is it offensive that um, God should do something like that? Because, let's face it, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to human thinking because it tells us we are not the ones in charge. We don't like that. We take offense at that. The gospel tells us that we can't control everything in our environment, our physical environment or our spiritual environment. But that offends us. The gospel tells us that we might not know what is best for us, that somebody else might know better than we do. That is offensive to us. A great deal of scripture is offensive to the modern way of thinking. Modern, permissive, anything goes thinking. That is our culture of today where integrity is optional and truth is relative, is different for everybody. Um, when I was a kid, most people went to church. Well, that's laughable today. Um, but it's not so long ago. Human values change all the time. God's values do not, so we, we daren't we don't try and judge God by our values. But the good news is that scripture tells us that those of us who do choose to believe in Jesus Christ are promised eternal life in the presence of God. That's wonderful. It also tells us that we're not promised a trouble-free life in this world, this sinful, broken world. Some Christians seem to find that offensive, but that's what it says. That's the way it is. But when we talk about the gospel, what do we mean? If someone were to ask you to explain the gospel, to explain the contents of the gospel, how would you answer? Just, just take a minute to, to think about that. How would you answer the question, Tell me what the gospel is. What would you say? So here's a start. 1 Peter 3.18 Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's the nub of it. 
there's more to it than that. But that's the nub of it. I'd like to share a sort of a six-point summary, uh, which I've adapted from John Piper. Six points. Number one, God created us for his glory. Some of us learnt the Westminster Shorter Catechism when we were younger, or something similar. It begins with this statement, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God says in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Everyone is created to glorify God. In Genesis 1.26, you'll remember that God says to himself, where the Trinity has a conversation amongst itself, let us make man in our image. Our own image. We are made in his image. We are made to be like God. And we are supposed to reflect that likeness. Okay, that's the first point. Second one. Therefore, every human being should live for God's glory. Does that make sense? If the first one is true, it must follow that that is it is incumbent on us to live to glorify God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And we reflect God's glory when we love him, when we trust him, when we are thankful to him, when we obey him, when we value him above everything else. To do those things is to glorify God. That is the kind of life that pleases him, and incidentally, that's the kind of life that other people notice. Number three, but... We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all memorize this verse in Sunday school, I'm sure. Romans 3, 22 and 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We could all do a better job at loving, trusting, thanking and obeying God than we do. Therefore, this is a letter, by the way, that's full of therefores. Therefore, we all deserve eternal punishment. If we're talking about a God who is righteous and just, we, we need to accept both sides of his character, the warmer fuzzies and the other side. We can't pick and choose. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, 
But the gift of God, or the free gift of God in some translations, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it's not a politically correct message these days to say that we're all sinful and we're going to pay for it with death. Nobody wants to hear that. But it's, this is part of the gospel message. Rejection of Jesus leads to eternal punishment. But rest assured that that is not God's wish for anybody. Not at all. That is why he offers eternal life as a free gift to anyone who will believe. That is his desire for everybody. Number five. Yet in his great mercy God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to provide for sinners a way of eternal life. We also memorized John 3.16 at Sunday school. 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Condemning the world is not God's favourite activity, not what he wants to do. So he chose to allow his son Jesus to suffer the punishment and death which were due to us because of our sinfulness. And he preferred to do that rather than to send people to internal punishment. That is his preference, but we still have a choice. Last one, number six. Therefore, eternal life is a free gift to all who will trust in Christ as Lord and Saviour and supreme treasure of their lives. I like that expression, supreme treasure. In Acts 13, 31, Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi and stuff happens. And they tell the jailer who says, what must I do to be saved? What an invitation is that? Believe in the Lord Jesus, they said, and you will be saved. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul puts it this way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no might, no maybe. You will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That is a fabulous piece of truth. To the Ephesians, he says, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, God in his mercy makes it easy for us to receive eternal life. We don't have to earn our salvation. There are no hoops to jump through. 
If we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. How wonderful is that? Why do we make it more difficult? But of course, this message was no more acceptable to the people of the first century than it is to the people of the 21st century. But in no sense is Paul making any apology for it, not in the least. Later on in chapter 1, in, in verses 16 and 17, he tells us that he's really excited at being able to preach the gospel. It is the one thing that drives him in his life and ministry. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul is quoting Habakkuk. What does he mean when he says, the righteous will live by faith? Well, that's what Romans is all about. Stay tuned. Look at this passage, though. The words just leap off the page or off the screen. Look, power, salvation to everybody, righteousness, faith, live by faith. And these are all themes that are going to come up again and again as we work our way through this letter. And those particular verses, uh, Megan will unpack for us next week, so be there. There are other themes, of course, many of them, including salvation, that's a, nothing small, the sovereignty of God, judgment, spiritual growth, and the righteousness of God. Some of those were, were mentioned in, the, in that little film clip. I'd also like to mention a theme that's not in this list. And that is the theme of perseverance in times of trial and times of suffering. So it, this, will, this theme will also be highlighted as we go through. All the first century churches were persecuted. The first century Christians all suffered hardship. They all had a hard time for their faith and many died for their faith. And we know, of course, that today there are many places where that continues to happen and we pray for our brothers and sisters in those places. And we were warned about this. Jesus says so in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Not you might have trouble, you will have trouble, says Jesus. There's a verse in Job chapter 5 verse 7 where we read, Man is born to trouble just as sparks fly upwards. I like that. 
So Paul raises this issue in Romans, and particularly in chapter 8. He doesn't say why God allows stuff to happen for Christ to Christians, why they are allowed to experience hard times, persecution, or anything else for that matter. He simply states, as Jesus does, that it happens, and that it will continue to happen. So Paul's focus is not on the why, but on the grace that God freely gives to Christians to cope with it if they will receive it. This is the grace that enables them to handle life and to not only handle it but to thrive and to grow in faith and to grow in character in the process. Now we won't actually get to chapter 8 until August so hang in there, we'll get there. But we will see this theme coming up over and over again. Most of us can quote chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When we become Christians, we respond to the call of God. He calls each of us for a purpose. And in addition to that long-term purpose for our lives, in his plan, we can expect there to be a purpose behind everything that happens to us. So when things don't go as we expect, or unwelcome events occur, traumatic events occur, we can trust God's ultimate goodness. Doesn't mean we have to like it, but we can trust God's goodness. We can choose to take hold of the grace that God freely offers to us and cope with it and even, as I said, to thrive. But we could also choose to reject that grace. Even Christians can choose to reject the grace that God offers us. But it puts us in a dangerous position if we do. It means that we no longer trust in God's ultimate goodness. We suspect he has a motive for everything, or a, a bad motive for everything. Or we risk going to pieces. We risk becoming angry. We risk, be we risk becoming bitter towards God. And we even risk losing our faith altogether. In chapter 9, Paul borrows the image of the potter that uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah used, 9, 20 and 21. He says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or well, what do you think you're doing? Does the potter not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Those of you who have known me for a long time will have heard me say, God is good and his people are good. And the reason I can say that is that he has proven those two statements to me over and over since our family suffered serious trauma when our boys were little. And in some ways we're still dealing with it, but God is good 
He's still good. His people are good and have been good to us. And God will sort things out in his way and in his time. He's still at work. So that's just the, the flip side of it, the good news and the bad news. So what is Romans all about, to finish up? It's about God's plan of salvation and righteousness for all humankind. And it is a good plan, if we will accept it. And it's good because God is good. Stuff will happen along the way, but God's grace is always sufficient for us if we will accept it also. So just to close, ever so slightly paraphrasing the last verse of our passage, Romans 1.7. To all in Alice Springs who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is on offer to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you called Paul to be your servant, even though he was anything but that beforehand. We thank you for enabling him to write what he has written for us in our New Testament. And we thank you in particular for the letter to the church, churches in Rome, for the thorough and systematic and comprehensive explanation of the gospel that he gives to us. So we pray, Father, for ears to hear and the faith to accept what you are teaching us as we read through and study this letter. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.